Hey everyone, we have received exceptional support for the Diaries Plus. It means so much to us. It's been a tough year for us. We're down on sponsors, but you keep lifting us up and making this show possible. And because of that, we get to keep making more cool shows for you. So today we're releasing a new series on Diaries Plus called Good, Good, Bad. Trips, adventures, and fiascos that define our lives. On New Year's Eve 2023, Mason Gravelly slid a stand-up paddleboard into the tannin-stained waters of Lake Okeechobee and embarked on an adventure he's been dreaming of for years, an unsupported crossing of one of our country's biggest lakes. Between the weather, toxic algae, and alligators, he was told it was preposterous. But Mason's journey was a culmination of years of Florida adventures and a passion for conservation. Here's a little taste of the first good, good, bad episode, Alligator Lake. Wherever you are is an adventurous place to people that aren't from there. And so it's like, I'll be honest, right now at this point in my life, I would never leave within an hour or two of my home if I could. And I'd probably, that's probably going to change at some point. But right now, that's like my reality. And I did not see that coming. Like, I I would have laughed at you if you you said that's the way you're going to think in five years. And so... It, it, all of us have to go through it. Like, oh, adventure is elsewhere or life and fulfillment and what we're looking for is elsewhere. And I think part of maturing and just part of just living this life is one, going through that. And two, <laughs> realizing everything you need is right here. You know, how many times have people told us that, but it, it takes learning it yourself, you know? Subscribe to Plus Now for the full story and access to all new episodes. As always, Thank you for your support. Now, on to the show. Hey, everyone. I'm going to keep this short today because I'm going on vacation. Yes. Uh, We are up in our little travel trailer, holding it down in the Crystal Mountain parking lot right now. And I'm ready for a break. It's been a long year. I'm sure you probably feel the same way. We've got the Christmas lights strung up. Um, There's no snow in the forecast, but that's okay because we're all together. And it's just this commitment we make year after year to be up here as a family doing the thing we love. So in that vein, in that spirit, producer Stephanie Maltrich brings us a story about committing to yourself, committing to a sport, and committing to an act of difficult joy year after year. We're going to navigate 40 miles. I know, 40 miles, it's a lot. Through darkness, blizzards, frostbite, and gear failures. And it will be fun. I promise. By the end, you might just be ready to sign up for next year. I'm Fitzco Hall, and you're listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Happy holidays. decade ago, I committed to a lifelong dream of moving to a ski town. And when I arrived in December, I immediately started hearing buzz about a ski race. Not just any ski race. The Traverse, as locals refer to it, is a 40-mile ski race that begins at midnight and takes skiers from Crested Butte to Aspen. I listened in on conversations with curiosity, 
whether they were with coworkers or between friends in line at the post office. It often seemed like everyone was chatting about training plans, gear, partners, and what on earth the weather might do during this year's Traverse. At first, I didn't know if it was something I could do. I was never an uber endurance athlete. I had just started backcountry skiing. But over the course of that winter, whenever I shyly expressed interest, almost everyone would say, you can do it. So the next winter, I did. To say I obsessed over the race is an understatement. I asked locals to go on coffee dates or come over to my house where I'd bake them pizza to ask all of my questions. The wealth of experience in the valley brought years of wisdom, calming my anxious mind. The race requires people to compete in pairs. Some of the advice I got in partner selection was, find someone you don't mind talking to for 12 hours straight. So I sought out my friend Kirsten, who I had done many long adventures with, thinking our history of climbing and traveling together would be a foundation good enough to stand or ski on. Then I created a training plan, which included many days a week of skinning laps of the ski resort. I took several day trips to scout the first 13 miles of the course. I mapped out other long link-ups that got me out on my skis for the majority of the day. And finally, I cobbled together the gear. I asked for advice on how to best store my water in freezing temperatures. What was the most ideal layering system? What skis? My boss at the time lent me his pair of cross-country skis with metal edges, and I bought a pair of boots and started breaking them in. The week of the race, I was a bundle of nerves. Each night I'd go to bed with knots in my stomach. I tossed and turned as I worried about whether or not I'd be able to ski through the night. The possibilities of frostbite, low visibility, or breaking my flimsy ski bindings kept me up at night. At 11 p.m. on the night of the race, Kirsten and I loaded up our packs and hopped on the bus for a short ride up to the base of the ski resort. We stood at the back of the pack, and when the director of the race yelled, go, we started the long slog to Aspen. Our headlamps illuminated the first six hours of the race as we plotted one ski in front of the other, always forward. Arrived in Aspen 15 hours later, as we crossed under the inflatable arch marking the finish line, we grabbed each other's hands, and then I crossed my skis and fell flat on my face. It was a magical experience, and it remains one of the hardest things I've ever done. I had to dig deep to keep going. I had to tow Kirsten when she bonked, and I barely ate any food. Ever since my first traverse, I've always toyed with doing it again but I never have. Each winter, I'm infected by the buzz in town for those who signed up and are training and preparing like I did over a decade ago. But every year, I make excuses about lacking money for the new modern gear or the expensive hotel in Aspen. But really, I think I've been intimidated by knowing that I would have to dig that deep again. The race is hard no matter how prepared you are. A lot of Crested Butte locals do the Traverse more than once handfuls of times, dozens of times, and one brave soul has done it 25 times. 25! 
That's every single race since the Grand Traverse started in 1998. And he's the only one to do so. When I was growing up, I had three older brothers, but my father was a national ski patroller at this little ski area called Dry Hill. And the most amazing thing is we had night skiing. So between the ages of two and 18, I was able to ski all the time. Seven days a week, basically. Pat O'Neill says his father brought a lot of history of skiing to their family, which rubbed off on him and his brothers. And the proximity to Dry Hill in Waterton, New York, probably helped. Two and a half miles. In fact, that place kind of raised the four O'Neill boys. Like, we could get a ride up there after we had done our homework. Yeah, right. And uh, I think they started spinning the lifts about 4.30. That was like my whole reality as a kid. Just, and it was only 300 vertical feet. I just love skiing. I just, I didn't care if it was 30 below um, and it was night skiing, I'd go up there and ski. And I think I raced my first race at four, which would be in 1968. I had wooden skis, leather boots, safety straps. And uh, uh, it was uh, kind of the early, you know, the earlier days of the equipment. The first race left a mark on Pat so much that he spent the remainder of his childhood and adolescence ski racing. He was on the Empire State Ski Team, a program funded by the state of New York, where he was coached by prominent Austrian and German skiers. He traveled to the Olympic training grounds in Lake Placid. Skiing became a way of life for Pat. Soon after college, Pat moved to Crested Butte, nestled in a high mountain valley framed by 12,000-foot peaks on Colorado's western slope. So I was really only planning to come to Crested Butte for a year and ski and once i got in this valley and saw like paradise divide um i was here i was not only blown away by the snow and the terrain i was blown away by just these majestic views that you get and i was really really hooked i mean once you get the rocky mountains in in your veins Sometimes there's no going back. 36 years later, Pat's a known athlete in the community. Each summer, he spends countless days in the Alpine, riding his mountain bike or running. He's run a 100-mile race every summer for the past 15 years. And in the winter, you'll find him skiing in the backcountry and training for the Grand Traverse. I mean, I taught in the same school for 28 years. I'm really a creature of habit. And I kind of see the the Grand Traverse, like my annual cleaning of my teeth. It's like I, at this point, although, you know, I raised 25, I, I love doing it. And I love doing it just to reconnect with a lot of my friends, my mountain friends. But I also do it because of all the experiences I have during the winter leading up to the event. It was in September, yeah, September uh, of 1997. And I was riding my bike, my mountain bike, back from Aspen. And I ran into Jan. And, and when I was 
kind of on this flat spot, she like grabbed my arm and said, stop. And she said, hey, O'Neill, like, what would, what do you think if we did a ski race connecting Crested Butte and Aspen? And I said, that'd be badass. Jan Runge described the route she had in mind, a 40-mile ski tour of the Elk Mountains beginning in Crested Butte and cresting five high points above 11,000 feet, eventually ending at the base of Aspen Mountain after skiing down the resort's slopes. Pat's response? That's a burly way to go. Jan wanted the race to mirror European-style ski races, like the PDG, an endurance race in the Alps organized by the Swiss Army. I loved it because there's always been this really good history between Aspen and Crested Butte. And her original thought was, wouldn't that be amazing to bring just mountain people together through a ski event? And I said, it sounds really great. Months passed and Pat received a call from Jan around Christmas. And she's like, I think we're going to go for it. And I was, I pretty much was like, you're kidding. Like, I thought we were just kind of talking in the late wildflowers. Like, you're going to do this. Like, you're, you're going to take this concept and turn it, try to turn it into reality. She asked Pat and his friend Jimmy Faust to test the course to make sure it would go. They agreed. And on a cold January morning, they set off around 6 a.m. in skinny telemark skis with three pin bindings and leather telemark boots. No buckle with one pair of skins each. It was really difficult because we had to navigate the route. We weren't using a GPS. We were using just a regular map and just kind of an intuitive sense that we we're going the right way. Uh, we had these meatloaf sandwiches. <laughs> we had maybe a flask of water, maybe a couple of Jolly Ranchers. It took them hours into the night. They finally arrived at the top of Aspen Mountain, but it was pitch black. They squinted and saw a beam of light from a late night snow groomer. So our friend Doug Bitterman was driving cats and we were like, Doug. And he's like, what are you doing here? He's like, we just skied over from Crested Butte. We just followed his cat down to Aspen and we called Jan and we said, don't do it because it was really, really hard. But a few months later, on April 3rd, Pat and Jimmy lined up alongside 46 other teams for the first annual Elk Mountains Grand Traverse. Most of the crowd was from Crested Butte or Aspen, and most of them were on heavy telemark skis. Jan began the inaugural race with a ceremony, including a blessing from a local pastor by the name of Father Tim. Legend has it that she stood before the crowd and said, First of all, I think you are all crazy for doing this. Then she sounded the horn and the racers took off into the night, each stroke of the ski illuminated by their headlamps. And the amazing thing is we had no idea like how it was going to go. That was Grand Traverse number one. It was the start of something we knew that the Grand Traverse was here to stay.
Let's dig into some of the nitty gritty details of the race that make it legendary. On the Traverse, racers climb nearly 7,000 feet over 40 miles. The race starts at midnight and takes racers anywhere from 6 to 15 hours to complete. Today, over 200 teams line up at the starting line, and anyone can sign up. But racers have to make several time cutoffs, which are tough, and about 30% of the teams are turned around each year. If racers miss the cutoffs, they have to make their way back to Crested Butte on their own. As a former race director said, blisters are a big deterrent, mental meltdowns are common. The first big climb takes skiers a meandering 13 miles past a backcountry hub up to Star Pass. Star is a significant landmark in the race for a few reasons. First, it's the cutoff point. Second, for middle-of-the-pack racers, many get to see the sunrise behind the majestic Star Peak. Hundreds of volunteers help pull the race off, starting in Crested Butte, along the course, and at the finish line in Aspen. Some of those volunteers are safety teams that set up at backcountry huts and mountain passes a week before the race to monitor race conditions. If the conditions are iffy, they call a reverse, sending racers back to Crested Butte from Star Pass, which has only happened five times in the history of the race. Racers can encounter any weather, and they have. Ground blizzards, below zero temperatures, insane winds, frostbite, and so much more. When talking about the Traverse, often the conversations are centered around gear. Over 25 years, I've seen some crazy stuff. I've seen um, ridiculously heavy equipment, packs that look like you were going up to Everest Base Camp. I've seen water systems <laughs> that freeze by the time that they get off the ski area. I mean, I've seen... I've seen all kinds of stuff. Um, you know, your typical junk show, which is kind of like puts some of the soul into the Grand Traverse to see just the junk show. The race has certainly changed in 25 years, but Pat says the skis are the biggest evolution he's seen over time. He remembers the first year almost everyone had big, fat, heavy telemark skis, except for the winners a group from Aspen who wore the skinny classic Nordic skis. So the next year, everyone showed up with Nordic skis and kept using those until 2006 when Skimo skis, a lightweight Scarpa boot, and a Dinafit binding started trending. People found that they enjoyed it more because when they got to the top of Star, they could lock into a binding, arc really, really good turns. The race is also very remote. And starting the very first year, Jan required racers to bring enough gear to prepare to spend the night out. And it's a ton of gear. Over 30 items are on the mandatory packing list. Among the items are an emergency bivy shelter, hefty repair and first aid kits, layers and extra skins, beacon, shovel, and probe. And they have to have their gear checked off the day before the race. Because, think about in the course, we can't just have like a snowmobile drive you a mile down. Like when you're out there, you might have to stay out there. So that's why we have to have all of the equipment in case we were to spend a night out. Pat remembers times when people have made last minute gear adjustments to adapt to changing conditions. One dry year, the river, usually covered by snow to form bridges, 
cracked open, and people had to figure out how to get across. So we were taking skis on, skis off, but the river was open. The East River was open, and it was big time open. And so people were going to go with bags on their feet. And so Jimmy and I didn't want to put like garbage bags on our feet and walk across the East River, get back above the ranch and then head towards Aspen. So Jimmy had this idea and I didn't do it. And I'm going to say for the record, Jimmy drilled holes in the bottom of his Nordic boots and not, not, not to take weight, but he drilled so that, that when he got across the river, he actually had drainage. <laughs> and, you know, it was the most amazing thing because we had a really good year that year. It was a good year. Yeah. And we get there. And I remember him taking his boots off in Aspen. And, uh, I looked at the bottom of his boots and I was like, you drilled holes on the bottom of your boots. He's like, oh, totally. <laughs> like you had all that water in your in your socks. Mine was like, mine was gone. Like my sock was dry in like 100 yards after I got out of that river. Pat says a story about Jimmy and his silly drilled holes in his boots isn't unique. There are thousands and thousands of stories uh, of people like the food they prepared or this out of out of outer space idea of what would work in the Grand Traverse. Yeah. And you you've seen some stuff that that uh, is pretty wacky. Gear is certainly the baseline of being prepared for the race. But what might be even more important is who you do the race with. It's a partner race for safety reasons, but the unique Traverse partnership goes beyond safety. The partner thing is a big part of what makes it special. I've seen, I've seen siblings. I've seen father-daughter, father-son. I've seen teacher-student, in my case, two times. I've seen people who uh, have survived cancer and their um, primary caregiver and, and spouse, they do it together. It's pretty powerful stuff. I've seen people um, do it who have had a falling out and said, hey man, let's, let's bury, the, bury the hatchet and do the traverse together. Pat chooses his partners carefully and they have to meet some basic expectations. Quality in a partner is grit. You know, grit, a quality in a partner is to be supportive. I mean, if if one person's eating, you should be putting their skins on for them. Okay. I mean, having a partner is, first of all, saying, like, what are our goals? Like, what do we want? I just say a supportive, positive, gritty human being. Pat did the race for the first 10 years with Jimmy. They won three times and finished in the top teams in other years. But their successes didn't come without challenges. Pat remembers one race in 2003. <laughs> it was really dicey on the other side of, <laughs> of Star Pass. And I could never forget this. My, my partner, Jimmy, went down 
And I just see this headlamp connected to his head sliding about a thousand feet. So I had to ski down to him. When I got to him, he had one ski on. We searched and searched and searched and searched, and we didn't find his ski. They boot packed back up to the top of the pass. When they arrived at the ridge, a friend asked what they were looking for. Jimmy's like, I lost my ski. He's like, it's right here. It came off. You went sailing down the slope. We watched your... And so we took an extra binding and we had it because that was part of the, the required gear. And we put the binding on and we skied to the finish. After the break, we meet up with Pat as he's about to take off on his 25th Grand Traverse. Stay with us. And support comes from Kuat Racks. They just released the Ibex, an overlanding truck bed rack that handles substantial loads both on and off the grid because being off the grid is dope. Constructed from lightweight yet durable aluminum, the black powder coat is made for all the nature you can throw at it. Available in six different frame sizes to accommodate most truck models, the Ibex is engineered for adventure with versatile full and half-height configurations. For more details, visit kuat.com. Kuat, because you will absolutely love this bedrock and all the dope places you go. It's about 10 p.m. on March 30th, the eve of the 25th Grand Traverse. Racers meet in a warm ballroom at the base of Crested Butte Ski Area, awaiting the midnight start. Days before, when winds were gusting up to 70 miles per hour, no one thought they'd be skiing to Aspen. But on the dawn of race day, everything was calm. And by noon, racers received the green light. They'd kick off to Aspen that night. I follow Pat around the room. He says he doesn't mind because he's pretty dialed by now. Pat, who's your partner this year? Cosmo Langsfeld. How'd you choose him? He's the man. Uh, Cosmo is a student of mine, and uh, he paints with me for O'Neill painting, and we do everything together. So he said, you know, let's do the Grand Traverse together. Cosmo, why are you doing it with Pat? Because he's Pat. He's great. It's fun to be around, fun to ski with. Um, how many partners have you had? Uh, I've had a lot. I've had a lot of partners, but Cosmo's probably the biggest dirtbag I've had, which is, which is the best. I'll take it as a compliment. Because, you know, we're kind of like, our approach is going to be like the guys eating out of the dumpsters at Yosemite in like 1960. <laughs> All right, beacon checks? Beacon check. All right. I'm in. Awesome. Good deal. I passed. Yeah, that means you're going. We're going to ask. I have zippers that blow out sometimes. How are you feeling tonight? Are you excited? Nervous? No, I don't get nervous anymore. I've done too many. This is number 25. So you're not nervous. What are you? 
I'm excited. I'm going skiing again with Cosmo. Why do you think you're the only person that's done 25 of these? <laughs> Strong back and a weak mind. <laughs> what do you think about like the weather and the prospects for tonight? But it was really mild, it's starry, it's nice, and you can tell it a little bit in the room tonight because on nights where it's stormy or it's going to be 20 below, you can feel a lot of tension. So this feels, the room feels really, really good tonight. And then what are your guys' goals as a team? Have fun. Have fun. Cosmo said he doesn't want to know what place he's in, what <laughs> no. time it is. No. That's not his style, man. You know, he's he's like, I'm skiing, you know. If he was like, I think we're second in the, you know, whatever category, he would like throw up in his mouth. He's like, he's, he's not that way, man. He's just an alpinist. He's a mountaineer. So we're going with an alpinist, mountaineer mentality. Yeah, I mean, well, I think we're on the same page where it's like we want to go have fun, which we normally do when we go skiing. And... But we both like to race, so we'll get out there and we'll just do whatever we can. Yeah, yeah. Strong, so. We're going to go as fast as we can, yeah. you know, because that's just kind of, I don't know. It's fun. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like a masochistic kind of way. Yeah. <laughs> what did you guys do to train all season? I mean, just pound backcountry. You know, Geo Bullock always said that the Grand Traverse was just training for skiing peaks in the spring. I thought that mentality was great. Yeah. <laughs> the Grand Traverse is just training for spring backcountry. I was like, there you go. Nice. Outside the base area ballroom, some volunteers set up the starting line. House music is pumping. An artist sets up a light installation. The night is clear, and we can see the stars. And it's not very cold. The exciting energy buzzes throughout my entire body. Since the first race... Father Tim has always given the blessing of the free healers. He stands at the start, dressed in a long robe and pointy priest hat. I ask him why he does the racer blessing. Tim, could I ask you a question? Yeah. Will you just tell me what, what is this blessing? Why do you do it? Why do I do it? Yeah. Well, as a racer, originally, I can deeply appreciate all that goes into not only preparing for the race, but also the the suffering and sacrifice that racing involves and all the variable conditions and just for all of us to know that we're being looked out for and have the the blessing of the most high upon us hopefully hovering over us and watching out for us throughout the race i think is uh, necessary it's it's what we would ask for and there's many people who share that sentiment, I'm sure. Yeah, and you've done it 25, this will be your 25th time doing it. 25th year, yeah. Because we all, you know, love and revere the beauty of the natural world, um, to be skiing through it at night, it's a spiritual experience for, for most of us. All You know, living in a place like this, all we have to do is look around, and it's kind of like the the handwriting of the divine all around us you know the soaring peaks and the snow-covered valleys and so it, it invokes a lot for us spiritually just doing this and so to be able to say so in a wonderful blessing i'm 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 delighted i'm honored yeah i'm excited to hear it Woo! racers trickle outside they plop their skis on the snow headlamps turn on 
Side by side, they adjust their poles and look uphill into the night. Some even dance to the music. All right, all right, all right, folks. Let's gather your attention to Father Tim with a blessing of the free healer. Are you ready for your Grand Traverse blessing? Hear ye all thou seekers of Grand Traverse glory, for tonight ye fulfill the 25th edition of this story. Gather thy courage and summon thy spirit. It will take all thy strength, endurance, and grit. Be blessed by the Holy One, whose spirit will abide. Every breath, every pole plant, every kick, and every glide. May Uller give wings to your skis and your pace as you and your partner move as one through the race. And now as you start, may thy fortitude remain, for ye wilt surely be worshiping in the cathedral of pain. Let let the racers cheer one another with a worthy outburst of ecstatic celebration for this great Grand Traverse! All right, all right, all right! Seven, six, five, four, three, two, one, go! A lot of people don't realize is they're not used to being up from midnight until let's just say 10 o'clock. And so what they're dealing with sometimes is just, it's the middle of the night and it's windy and it's cold and the conditions are changing. When you get to star, you're gonna look down you're going to see glow sticks and you're going to get to Geo's fire. And so people who have never done the race are like, what's Geo's fire? So Geo's fire is you are out there in the middle of the night. You basically were just completely brutalized by wind before you got to Star Pass. And then you ski this huge ball. And then all of a sudden you you pull up on this fire and Geo makes <laughs> gallons and gallons of coffee. And he's a New Englander. His skills are amazing. And um, I didn't drink any coffee because I was just worried a little bit about my stomach at that time. But Cosmo, my partner, was like, I cannot wait to have a cup of Geo's coffee. And just like timing we pull in and he's like how you doing O'Neill?" I was like Gio I'm doing pretty well and he's like good to see you good to see you and then uh, he points at Cosmo and he's like cup of coffee Cosmo and Cosmo just said I would love a cup of coffee and then he follows up cream sugar and so uh, 
uh, Cosmo just goes, no, black. And he goes, there you go, buddy. And everybody is just blown away. And the big thing that happens at Geo's Fire is it gets so cozy and the coffee tastes so good and you actually start to eat some of the food you brought. Um, like the leaders will be in and out. But Geo also has to be like, okay, bud, you might want to start heading towards Aspen. But, but that's another factor of the race. And we talk about soulful parts. Yeah, it's, it's a rough backcountry race. It's, it's hard. But we also have things like Geo's Fire, you know, the amazing people at the Friends Hut, amazing people at Barnard Hut, incredible people at Taylor. And so as you go along, you, you really get humbled by the fact that this race couldn't happen and wouldn't happen without all of these volunteers. And I'll tell you, people come out of the woodwork to help with check-in, with being at the finish, with volunteering along the course, with helping with supplies, whatever the case may be. But I'll tell you, if you were to show up and Geo's not there slinging coffee, then I don't know. I don't know if I don't know if we could still have the traverse without Geo's fire. Cosmo and Pat finished the race in 10 hours and 11 minutes. This year was really special because we treated it kind of like a tour. And when we were going across, after we got off the ski area, there was like this two track, a skin track and this flat. And people were just kind of frothing at the mouth and just were really in just a, almost um, a panicked state. And I just looked at it, I, I just said to Cosmo, you know, can we just do this as a tour? Can we just do this as a good night out? And uh, that's exactly what we did. But we were looking at the, the moon setting, you know, on Pearl Pass and the sunrise hitting Cathedral and um, Castle Peak. And uh, we just enjoyed the ride this year. Over the years, Pat has raised over $200,000 for a handful of local organizations, helping individuals with cancer or disabilities and helping the local kids get out and ski. You know, doing these events, the Grand Traverse, and looking at it as an opportunity to bring awareness and actually income to, to various organizations. Our slogan at the Living Journeys Athlete Corps is, we win when others win. You know, it, you're not really looking at, you know, how did I do in my age category? You're like, wow, we just raised $17,000 for people who are fighting cancer right now in this valley. Winning used to be his goal, but now raising money keeps Pat engaged. And he has one other big goal in mind. Because my twin daughters, Katie and Piper, um, they're going off to college here at Middlebury, both of them. And I am just being quiet because I wouldn't mind in their sophomore year if they gave me a call from Vermont and said, hey, dad, you know, I was really thinking about uh, doing the Grand Traverse with you. But I want them to be able to decide. That would be a powerful experience I'm kind of a pathological optimist and that 
okay, I'm 50, almost 59 now, but so I can do it with Katie Piper, but then I can do it with my grandson or my granddaughter. So I might be in my 80s, but I will still get to Aspen. I'll tell you that right now. I love this event. I mean, I've done 25 and it's, it's five days after the Traverse and I'm still soaring from the Traverse. Thank you, Pat, for sharing your story. Our stories come from friends, from friends of friends, and from you, our community. If you have a compelling idea for a guest or a story lead, please give us a shout. You can use the submission form on our website, dirtbagdairy.com. Music today from Jacob Bain, Anise Koto, Western Runners, Faring, Curio, David Katz, Akin Orbe, and Brendan O'Connell. The tracks are courtesy of the Artists Track Club or Free Music Archive. Jacob Bain and Anise Koto composed our theme song. You can find all the links to the artists at our website, dirtbagdiaries.com. This episode was produced by Stephanie Maltrich, edited by Andrew Burton, with additional production help from Ashley Langholtz. Illustration by Walker Call. Becca Call is our executive producer. I'm Fitz, and you've been listening to the Dirtbag Diaries. Thanks for tuning in.